Damaged Goods Podcast. Music is a is a powerful, powerful thing, a powerful force, an energy. It does a lot. It does a lot for different people, and it could do different things for you at different times. It heals. Maybe you went through a little breakup, a little heartache. Your shit's hurting. You could put on some sad songs and cry with them. Maybe some songs to kind of pump you up. Maybe you're going through some stuff as a kid or whatever. It helps you cope with your life situations. It inspires. It motivates people, you know. You got the Rocky theme song. You got the Best Around by Joe Esposito. Esposito from Karate Kid, you know. A lot of cheesy 80s martial arts movies, like Van Damme movies. They have this great kind of motivational you know, music. Or even Scarface, push it to the limit, limit. I mean, that's probably not great motivation to become a fucking drug kingpin, but, you know, it does things like this. And music also, um, it, can, it can hypnotize. It can kind of blind you or, or, or just, you know, put you in a trance, you know? I mean, those hypnotist dudes, they, they wave the clock back and forth, and sometimes it's a certain song or, or a, a jingle or, or music they play. I mean... There's studies done that in advertising, corporations and companies would make little catchy jingles, and now you associate that product with it. Just think about, I'm loving it. But Justin Timberlake and fucking Pusha T. I wonder what part of that Pusha T did. But yeah, dude, that little jingle gets inside of not just kids' heads, but definitely kids' heads, but adults' heads, and now you want McDonald's. It's a friendly jingle, safely ushering in a craving for a very unhealthy food that'll fucking get you fat and clog your arteries. But, um, you know, music can do these things. And sometimes we're not even aware of, of the words, the lyrics. Or, or you know, it'll just kind of lull you to this peaceful state where you might be malleable or susceptible to things. You think about Charles Manson. Uh, you know, he didn't cut it writing music for the Beach Boys. But maybe his little ditties put his followers in, in some kind of trance to kill so he could motivate them. You know, because he wasn't out there necessarily gruesomely murdering people but he was sending his minions out and you know he maybe strummed on his little guitar his fake hippie songs and they obeyed his orders and many times you know if the melody's catchy or if the beat is good or if it's just repeatedly played think about how many shitty songs you don't like that have just been pumped on commercial radio or, or in fucking clubs or the airport or when you're out shopping or in commercials and now you're singing along and you're like, fuck, I hate this song. Why is it stuck in my head? And it just got stuck there because of repetition. There's songs that, you know, like, you know, hip-hop, I know a lot of contemporary shit. Some of my friends, and they were like, man, I don't really like the song, but the beat is good. That's a, that's a common excuse or, or explanation or whatever you hear. Yeah, but the beat is catchy. So sometimes it's not even about the lyrics or the words. They could be singing mumbo-jumbo. You might not even understand it. I mean, think about songs in other languages. You don't even know exactly what they're saying, but you're, you're humming along, singing along, not even knowing the words. It's, it's the combination of the beat, the music, the melody, and it just gets you, man. We just bop to it, you know, not even paying, even if it is a language you understand, you're not even paying attention to the lyrics. People go to concerts and shit, and, and they just, they rock out because it feels good. And especially in hip-hop, you know, there's people like, man, they don't fucking like the lyrics, they don't respect it. But like, you know, there's fans that go for that shit at a live show. But I think live, at a, at a live music experience, it's got to be a whole immersive thing. And the music has to be there. It can't just be, I mean, not going there just for fucking spoken word. It's not some Saul Williams slam poetry thing. Not to demean that shit, but you know what I'm saying? 
the music really gets people. And, you know, maybe you're not, you're listening to the lyrics, but you're not interpreting them. Or maybe they're not straightforward, you know? When you read poetry or, or, or even like some little vignette that someone like Jake the Snake myself might write, you know, uh, you might not interpret it or take it the way the artist wrote it. You just take it the way you want to take it. And, you know, then some things are going to go over your head or by your head. And you're not even going to know. But you're now you're fucking in a trance. And now you've got that shit stuck in your head, mesmerized. You love it. You're going to remember it forever. Forever. And uh, why I'm bringing all this up on this episode of Damaged Goods is, um, I don't know, like a week ago I heard a song, which I'll get into in a bit. It's a sweet, soft song. It's, it's kind of mellow, happy. It's upbeat. It kind of makes you feel good. And then I realized, you know, I know what the lyrics are. I know what the song is about. And it's quite a contrast to what the fucking song sounds like. It's not a sweet, upbeat, mellow song. It's actually quite tragic and depressing. If someone was to tell you, hey, listen to this song about blank, and it was sad and depressing, people would be like, fuck, no way, man. Except for like, you know, miserably sad goth people that like sad songs or me on occasion who likes sad songs. But most of the time people would say no. But then people will listen to some music and they don't even know it's a fucking miserably depressing song. It just sounds so good. And they love it already. So this whole episode of Damaged Goods is about soft but hard, you know, like gentle but fucking menacing or depressing. Songs that are not, they're not about what they sound like, you know, a little, uh, misdirecting if you will misleading it could be i'm not saying the artists are trying to necessarily mislead you but just if it becomes a popular song and it's played over and over or maybe it's used in commercials to sell certain products or whatever you're just not associating it with what it's really about you know quite the opposite so this is this is about you know soft but hard it's like maybe a porcupine looks cute from far away but he's got those quills or a skunk we know skunks are dangerous because they smell but you say you had no sense of smell and you're from another planet. You just see this black and white striped little animal. You might think that's a fucking squirrely cat type thing. Nah, dude, that's a disgusting animal, you know? And that's its defense mechanism in nature is to spray you. What a shitty one, too, by the way. All these other, like, you know, puffer fish blow up with the spikes. The snake's got the venom. You know, some shit's got a spitting black ink that'll poison you. This animal just makes you smell really bad. And you have to take a bath in tomato juice or something. Thank God it's never happened to me. But... So uh, the first song I'll talk about on this Damaged Goods episode is the song that inspired the idea for this episode uh, that, you know, a week ago I heard it. And I know the song. I know what it's about. And I was like, man, this is crazy that this is what the, the topic is, but this is how it sounds. And, it, you know, it led to me doing a little research, a little digging, and thinking about other songs that have the same sonic aesthetic, super either happy, mellow, upbeat, or maybe it's just a song that's been used in so many quote-unquote positive elements, commercials, you know, pop bubblegum-ass shit, commercial TV, radio, but they're fucked-up content. You know, maybe they don't have, like, the vicious, gruesome lyrics, but that's beside the point. The song was uh, Pumped Up Kicks by Foster for the People. came out in 2011. Uh, You might have heard it. I'm not going to, you know, bore you or disrespect you with me attempting to sing these songs, but you know, it's the, all the other kids, with, yeah, whatever. When I first heard it back in the day, you know, this is kind of around the time where the hypey sneaker fucking steez is, is really deep. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's really deep. So I just assumed it was a song about kicks, sneakers. I didn't really listen hard to it. And my boy schooled me to it. Uh, it is is quite not 
about that. And this is the first, mind you, this is the band's, or the artist's first single song released. So this is their intro to the whole world. Not like this is something they put down the line or the second single or an album cut. This is how they come into the game. But it sounds good, so people, they, they take to it. And I think maybe later down the line or after the fact, after people like it, it catches or it gets pushed and backing. Uh, what it's really about comes to the surface. It's about a kid that plans revenge in the method of a school shooting. You know, uh, school shootings, I mean, they're still going down. But I feel like back then it was, maybe I don't know if it was bigger, but it just felt like maybe it was happening more. And um, the aim of the song, as the, the, the main, the front guy, I don't even fucking, maybe his name is Foster, was to bring about awareness of mental health issues that could lead to something like a school shooting. Um, which actually I feel like seems to get overlooked when, when these occur. People, you know, always talking about gun restrictions and safety in the schools and all that's not to be neglected, but what, at the root of it, you know, not to get on this tangent, is the kid on certain medications, do they suffer from any mental health issues? Is there a neglect in general in society for these issues? Um, but, you know, it's, it's a tragic and awful thing. But what made the person do that? That's being bullied, you know? This kid in the song has been bullied, he finds a gun in his father's closet and goes for it. And, you know, he's talking about the pumped-up kicks, like, re referring, I believe, to, like, Reebok pumps, which was, like, you know, expensive shoes, kind of cool. Which is weird, though, because that was, like, an 80s, 90s thing. This is, like, 2011. Although I know they come back in vintage formats. For the record, Jake the Snake never had Reebok pumps. My mother got me uh, L.A. Gear Regulators, which is, like, the kind of bootleg L.A. Gear version. Kids were getting ran for the pumps when I was young, when I was, like, 10 and shit. So my mother was probably smart by doing that and I'm probably glad but uh, you know do these kids have depression bipolar disorder schizophrenia whatever I don't know so it's kind of you know it's kind of cool that he made that the point of the song but man I feel like most people have no idea I mean my girl didn't even know what that was about till I told her the other day the black D brown pumps with the orange ball of fire though by the way so that's a song that inspired the, uh, the concept on this damaged goods episode and we're going to go around in different genres. And if there's some songs that you know are, are sweet sounding and upbeat but fucked up or just serious heavy content that I neglected, hit me up, DM me, whatever, and you know, do a little second installment. Uh, Imagine by John Lennon, Beatles' John Lennon, 1971. Probably his biggest solo hit. I mean, I'm sure my father loved it. Everybody I feel like from that era loved it. It's all about peace and love and like, you know, removing religion and all these things. And it would be all peace. Um, but actually, I don't know. I feel like that's actually kind of bullshit. You could take away religions and shit and people will still find a way to fight and self-segregate. There's a great South, excuse me, South Park episode where Cartman wants the PS2 or 3, but it doesn't come out for like a month. So he freezes himself to wake up in the future, except he wakes up like 100 years in the future. And the other part of the episode's backstory was people beefing about religion. So he wakes up way in the future. There is no religion. Everybody's atheist. But there's like three different sects of atheism. And they're all fighting because they will pick apart shit. Humans just will do that. So, it, you know, no disrespect to John Lennon, but kind of disrespect to John Lennon. Um, you could take all that shit away. People will still find a way to fight. But... Um, it's kind of like a communist-like song. And John Lennon himself was quoted saying, it's virtually the communist manifesto. He made it smooth, kind of sugar-coated to get the message across, but it's just kind of wild. I mean, not to say that it's like a sad and depressing. It's not like a school shooter song, 
but it sounds like it's an all peace kumbaya love song and it's kind of about communism which you know the 70s the cold war was on and america especially was warring against it i don't know where the uk stood on it that's where he's from but interesting right john lennon the communist brian adams poppy ass 80s dude all my friends older sisters listened to that shit when we were little didn't quite like it. He has this very famous song, Summer of 69, uh, 1984, talking about he got his first real six-string guitar. He's reminiscing. Sorry, I'm drinking liquids because it's hot as balls. Uh, but contrary to popular belief, contrary to popularity, it's not about reminiscing about 1969. No, no, no. This guy, Brian Adams, you slick motherfucker. You slick motherfucker. Because not all these are necessarily about depressing, sad shit, but about a topic way heavier than what it sounds like or what the title is or what the lyrics in a straightforward manner would claim to represent. No, no, Mr. Brian Adams, Canadian, I believe, um, it's not some innocent coming-of-age song. Nope, it's actually about the semi-lame, kind of overrated sexual position, the 69 uh, that when you're you know, a young teenager, you probably think it's cool, you want to try it, and you realize it's not that great because one of you is not getting the full um, attention. You know, somebody's having a little too much fun, the other person's not. Uh, but yeah, it's about having sex during the summer, specifically 69ing, which if he was a teenager in the late 60s, this would probably be accurate for his sexual time. Uh, what a juvenile fucking position, though. And you think it's cool. It's very inefficient. Very inefficient. But Brian Adams, you slick motherfucker. Nicely done, dude. Nicely done. Next up is, is the boss. Bruce Springsteen. The New Jersey working man. Even though he's from Asbury Park, which used to be grimy. But it's like the shore where they surf and it's nice now. But it's not factory Jersey. It's not power plant Jersey. He wasn't like in some fucking mill slaving away. He was probably working at some bar, restaurant, whatever warehouse in in asbury park you know the working man the boss but anyway born in the usa comes out in 1984 this song is huge it's always played in the wrong context it comes across uh i think to everyone's first listen like it's a pro-american anthem uh, it's not anti-american but what it really is it's an anti-vietnam war song um you know he's talking about born in the usa going off i think his lyrics like Fight the yellow man. There's certain things like that. Uh, it kind of comes out a little late for Nam. I mean, this is 84. I don't know when his career kicked off, so maybe that's just circumstance. Nam is well over. But um, yeah, dude, everyone plays this in the in the wrong context. And uh, it's about, you know, when Nam vets came back and they were poorly treated in the U.S. And they were essentially guinea pigs. Like a lot of these people didn't want to go to that horrible war and be labeled baby killers. They were put in a shitty position. Maybe the first war the U.S. lost. You got World War II vets, World War I vets coming back honored as heroes. And Nam vets, quite the opposite. And it's, yeah, it's an anti-Vietnam War song. And uh, people, most people fucking don't get it. If you listen to the lyrics, they are actually straightforward anti-Vietnam War. But most people just don't because that's the way it is. And like I said, if it's getting played at like sports games and in a manner where it just sounds like a pro-USA anthem, people just assume it is. We just go with the flow, most of us, rather than listen and be like, you know what, this ain't that. I always wondered how he felt about it being, being used like that, being misused maybe, because that wasn't his intention, although that's just the way it seemed to fucking go down. 
Now the next one, oh, this one might be my favorite on the list. Favorite meaning like the most surprising and kind of maybe the most disturbing in some way. The Macarena. Do you remember the Macarena? Maybe some of you is too young. Um, comes out by this uh, this group, Los Del Rio, 1993. I remember just being in Spanish class in like sixth or seventh grade, and you fucking your Americanized Spanish teacher who lived in Sevilla, Spain for a few years is making you like sing and dance it to learn Spanish because there's a dance that goes along with it. It's really kind of upbeat and silly, you know. Like there's like all the songs with the dances that they'll do on some stupid Regis and Kathy Lee morning show and. People are, you know, gig along to it. And I feel like the accompanying dance that goes with this song makes it even more misleading because it is far from a happy, let's all dance together, practice it in middle school Spanish class song, dude. This shit is fucked up. Oh, also, like, you know, doing this dance embarrassingly in class, learning Spanish was horrific, dude. Uh, dude, what is this song really about? What is Los Del Rios really saying? Again, hypnosis. You're singing and you're dancing. Singing and dancing? Oh, you're, you're gone. You are in a trance. You have no idea what you're actually listening to. Especially because it's in Spanish, so a lot of people probably had no clue. They just fucking went down with it. It's actually about a woman who cheats on her man with two of his friends. Shitty friends, by the way. While he's in the army, dude. He's not just, she's not just cheating on him while he's in the army, which is probably every dude's nightmare that's in the army. But with two of his friends, fuck, there's so many more fish in the sea. Why don't you just go fuck some strangers? Why do that to him? What a fucking bitch. And then why a dance? Why make a song about this horrific topic and then fucking, you know, we're going to incorporate a dance only to make it a huge smash. Crazy. That one fucked me up. Uh, the next one is a song I fucking hate. I've always heard it. Shout out to my man Rocco. Uh... Man, I love you, bro, but I can't forgive you for playing this song at your wedding. I fucking hate it. I don't know anybody who listened to it when I was young. Maybe that's just a blessing for me. Third Eye Blind. The song is Semi-Charmed Life. If you were to tell me that title, this song that came out in 97, I wouldn't know it. But I've heard it. You've all heard it. It's the do-do-do, It's played in fucking commercials and stupid rom-coms. It's the stupidest fucking song. And, you know, you assume it's a pop hit. It's some cheesy 90s band. It's just going to be about whatever the fuck it's about. It's going to be about whatever the fuck it's about. But lo and behold, it's not, it's not so straightforward. Now that super soft, cheesy pop appeal, the old trick of slipping and the vitamin in the ice cream, right? Your kid doesn't want to take the vitamins. I had a hard time swallowing vitamins when I was little. Anybody with gay jokes, ooh, swallowing? Yeah, nah, dude, come on, get out of here. So my mother would put it in a little scoop of ice cream and it would slide down. Now, now I have no problem taking vitamin supplements. I'm like Ray Liotta and Goodfellas. When he gets in the back of the cab to go to jail, he just, whatever, takes a couple of Advil and swallows them without water. I can do that now too. Crazy. Um, this song is kind of the vitamin the ice cream, except it's not a vitamin. It's a fucked up song about, guess what? Smoking meth. Yeah, that's right. Fucking meth. These dudes are from Frisco. California is a big meth-y state. I probably assume or associate rather uh, SoCal more with it or Bakersfield and Inland Empire and shit, but Frisco, he's methy. Dude, what a fucking ruse. What a, what a, what a fucking sham, dude. This sweet pop song, the doot, doot, doot. It's about meth. They said uh, it was kind of like their San Fran version of Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. You know, in his song, he's, he does the do, 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 do. They're doing their do, do, do. It's at a different meter. 
and that song, you know, Reed's talking about heroin. He's also talking about uh, cross-dressers and all kinds of shit. So instead of dope and being a little slower, it's about meth and it's all poppy. But if you if you learn this fact and then you listen to the song, you know, I think they in the hook or one part it's like, I need something else to get me through the day. What are they getting through the day with? Fucking meth, dude. Walter White would be proud. Or would he, dude? Also, it went four times platinum. Probably the biggest, most popular money-making song about meth in the fucking world. Crazy, dude. That's fucking crazy. But yeah, power of magic music, dude. Hypnosis. Motherfuckers have no clue. And I, I told my boy Rocco this because of the shit played at his wedding, which I very much disapproved of. I was far from the dance floor. And he goes, yeah, I know. I was like, what? He's, That's not like why he played it. Not because he does meth or anything like that. Just he likes the song, which is even, I don't know, what's more disturbing. Anyway, I still love you, Rocco. The next is a, is a quick one. It's not anything I can really elaborate on, but The Clash, London Calling. I don't think anyone really knew what it's about. It's not a super soft song, but it's popular. It's used in a lot in things that reference England or London, maybe played in the background. The song's actually about like the doom of everyday life is, is the quote that the band said. The doom of everyday life. Just that quote alone, pretty fucking depressing, dude. Uh, you know, specifically about the, the Thames River or the Toms. I don't know how to pronounce it, dude. Sorry. Sorry I'm mispronouncing it. Try to say my last name or half the towns in Massachusetts. Say Worcestershire sauce, and then we'll fucking we'll even it out. But they were talking about the Thames River flooding in London and just fucking just miserable death looming. So that's kind of sad. Next one, 99 Luftballons by Nina, 1983. This, this German artist. And this song has been like kind of covered and sampled by a lot of people. Fucking New Kids on the Block sampled it. Scarface sampled it for this song. It's going down. Uh, I want to say like John Forte or somebody did. It's really like upbeat and poppy as fuck. It's like a new wave song, which was, you know, early 80s. Kind of, that wasn't always a, a, a real bright song genre, but it wasn't dark and depressing. And this song certainly was not dark and depressing at all. Um, but it's fucked up. It's a fucked up, fucked up song, dude. So what is it about? Oh, nothing, no big deal, just nuclear holocaust. Nuclear holocaust. The idea that she had when she wrote it was that all these balloons, 99 of them, I don't know what a Luftballon is, maybe that's German for something, some kind of balloon. Does it mean red? I don't know. I speak Spanish and English, dude, barely. Cut me some slack. The balloons. 99 of them. They're led into the air. They're flying through the air. This is Cold War time. I don't know if she's from East or West Germany. I'm going to guess East because she was a musician at the time. West Germany. Or rather, my fault, she'd be from West Germany. East Germany would be under communist rule. Maybe not capable of putting a song like this out. The balloons that float into the Soviet airspace. Now they're mistaken for UFOs. And that causes nuclear missiles and shit to be launched. Boom, bam, crash. The fucking world's ending. And, and, you know, nuclear holocaust. And in the end, she finds one single balloon left along the ruins of the world. Sweet. Wow. Happy. Some of these you kind of wish you didn't learn what the real meanings are. Because it's like, fuck, dude, now can I listen to this song? This is depressing as all fucking hell. The next one is is something that, not going to say I hold it personal to me, but it does have an odd personal connection to the snake man. Every Breath You Take by the Police comes out in 1982. Uh, my birth year. Sting. Fucking Sting of the Police. Also, the Police, one of the best three-piece bands ever, dude. They really have a kind of a reggae sky inspiration sonically, too, if you listen to them. 
Sting's a wild motherfucker too. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second. I, I guess I have two personal connections to this. This song is, you know, it's a soft kind of heavy. It sounds like a love song, whatever. This also was sampled by fucking Puffy, a.k.a. Diddy, um, for um, I'll Be Missing You, his dedication to Biggie when he died for his first solo album, which was a smash hit. He sampled, like, with Zeppelin and The Police. He sampled a lot of, like, big rock songs, and, you know, that was at a time when Shiny Suit era was coming full force and easy sample loops, and Diddy made that, but that Biggie dedication was fire. I'll Be Missing You, Faith Evans on the hook. Anyway, Sting goes through a bad breakup. He goes to the Caribbean, Caribbean, the right music. He goes to Jamaica, and then he also goes to Nevis, where I was living as a wee baby, my parents there. And, uh, you know, my, my father had a club in Montserrat, music venue. They hung out with musicians. We don't have to get into that. I probably bragged about it enough. Well, not brag, but just stating the facts. So Sting hung with my folks. And my mother always used to say, oh, he named his kid uh, after you. He liked the name Jake. If you look at it, he has a kid born in 1985. What's the kid's name? Jake. Um, but anyway, he was down there writing music. Uh, he would write a couple albums worth of shit down there, going through a breakup. This song, and this is after we left, forced, I guess you could say, forced to leave Montserrat, another West Indian island, to go to Nevis. This song is, yeah, it's kind of about a breakup, and I don't know if it's necessarily about his but it's not a like a sweet, sad breakup. Oh no, dude, this is a little dark for the soft song. It's about an ex-lover being a stalker, being obsessed, can't let go. That's happened, maybe they've had that. It's pretty fucking scary. It's creepy. This stalker is clocking you every breath you take. They're watching every breath, every step you take. They're fucking following you, they're fucking creepy. Sting also said it's, it's kind of also about uh, Big Brother, surveillance, mass surveillance which would, you know, get bigger and bigger. In the 80s, I don't know how big it was, although England is, London in particular, is the most surveilled city, I think, in the world, which is pretty crazy. But uh, he's talking about, you know, cameras everywhere in cities, ankle monitors, uh, shit like that. I don't know if he means like a house arrest ankle monitor. What's happening, Sting? What are you into? But um, it, it's, it's, it's a dual song. Both of those underlying topics are fucking sad. The, the, the stalker one's a little more freaky. A little more freaky. I wonder if Puffy knew what it was about when he sampled it. I had no fucking clue until I researched it. Another connection to Sting. Uh, when the Snake Man had a former semi-occupation when I was doing security in a, in a gentleman's club, a.k.a. a strip club in L.A., between touring as a roadie, you know, it was a high-end joint. We'd have various celebrities and athletes come in. Sting was one of them. And he would always get the private rooms, get a couple girls, spend lots of money, and would go wild. And he would be in there for hours. He would stay later than we would be open. And we would, we would never let any patrons in after closing. But if you were spending money and still in there, we'd let you stay. And we'd, you know, whatever. And when he was done and leave, the fucking private rooms would be trashed, dude. He just shit everywhere. I mean, he paid. He tipped. He wasn't a dick. But this dude partied hard. And this is recently. This is in the last, you know, six years. So, fuck, I don't know how old he is. But this dude was still going in. He's very into tantric uh, sex, uh, allegedly. Not saying he did that at the club. I'm just saying. And and his, I should have, you know, I never stepped to him at the club and was like, hey, dude, you might remember or not remember at all because you're famous that you went to Nevis and hung out with some people and liked their kid's name and named your kid Jake. Maybe the bosses at the club would have frowned upon that, but I never did it because I'm just not that kind of guy. Sting, wild man. Uh, this next one is, is, it's kind of just a notable mention. It's not really misleading the way that it's it's fucked up and sad and shit, but... It's, a, it's an upbeat, popular, happy, 
quote unquote song that's not what it was written for. It's not what the artist intended. And it was totally taken down the wrong path and it bummed them out. This was a 1987 hit by the Beastie Boys. Just the first album. This is when they're coming out. You know, Rick Rubin is, is, they're using a lot of rock samples and Zeppelin drums. I don't really know what they sample for that, but it's Fight for Your Right to Party. And when I was young, I wasn't a super Beastie Boys fan off the first album. Paul's Boutique and shit later, I was into that more. But this shit, it just seemed like, I don't know, kind of frat boy. And the song is a big party anthem, and everyone liked to use it in like the video. It just looked kind of cheesy. And they kind of, they weren't obviously frat boys or New Yorker dudes, but it just felt whatever. And the thing is, they actually were clowning, dude. They wrote the song as a, as a parody. They were making fun of all these party anthems in the 80s. There was a lot of them, specifically like hair metal bands. Shitty rock songs, uh, you know, like Twisted Sister songs and all these other ones. So they were making fun of that. Problem is, I don't think, if you listen to the lyrics, no offense, guys, I don't think it's very straightforward that it's a parody at all. And they're not making fun of it in their voices, and it's also the big single, and it catches. So it's totally misinterpreted, and they didn't like that. They were bummed out that people didn't get it, and I, I get it. I, I feel you. It sucks when you make a piece of art and it's taken the wrong way, but that's art. People are going to take it for what they want. But again, I don't know. Maybe I should revisit it. I don't think there's any part of that song where you would take away from it that it was making fun of these fucking party anthems, you know? I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of, I mean, I feel their pain, but I don't at the same time. And I wonder, because it was such a big hit for them, I wonder if they embraced it. Like, were they playing it live? Like, did they just hate it? You know, some artists have big songs that become successful and they don't like them. And I feel like a, a true sign of whether an artist really has resentment toward a song that's bigger theirs they don't like is do they perform it live at concerts? Because they don't have to. They can play whatever they want. Now, maybe earlier in their career when this is a big hit, if they're performing on like a TV show or something, they got to play it, right? Play ball. But, you know, I don't know. I've never seen the Beastie Boys live. Were they doing it down the line? I, I would say no if they had this feeling towards it, like if it was totally misinterpreted. And also, if they wrote it as a parody, they might not really like the song. That happens. Just the sonic quality of it, like, I'm sick, I'm done with it. Never seen the Beastie Boys live. If you have, let me know. Do they do this song live? Um, yeah, no disrespect to the Beastie Boys. You know, I know um, they've, uh, you know, they do their thing. They've, they've been very contribution-heavy to, to hip-hop and rock and all that stuff. So these are some of the songs that soft and sweet, but not so much, dude. Not so much. And there's there's more, I'm sure. We could do a part two. If you know more, I'd love to know some hip-hop songs that are misleading like that. None really come to mind off rip. Um, but I'm sure there is some. But these some of these songs, the, the Pumped Up Kick song, go listen to that song. It's so sweet and soft. It's not about fucking sneakers. It's not about waiting to fight Flight Club or Supreme. Um, it's about a school shooting. One of that's heavy. Ill Bill from Nonfiction has a song called "Anatomy of a School Shooting." Pretty straightforward. I mean, that's the fucking title, and it's like a story-like song. No beating around the bush. And I love, I love songs that you know have a little mystery to it. You know, personification, like you know Nas, uh, "I Gave You Power." There's there's a lot of songs like that, and that's you know it's not straightforward. But you listen to it enough, you'll get it. You'll, you'll get the message. I think that's pretty cool. These aren't even like that. These are just creepy. I mean, if you explain to me that Sting's talking about a stalker watching every breath you take, but also somebody who really loves you could be watching every step and every breath, just having your back, your parents, whatever. But nah, dude, these are some fucked up songs, dude. Creepy motherfuckers, dude. Creepy motherfuckers. Um, 
I hope you dug that shit. Find some more songs. Let me know, dude. Maybe you wrote some fucked up shit. Tell me. Maybe I did. You never know. I've definitely written poems and chapters that have been misinterpreted. Or not misinterpreted, but maybe not taken the way I wrote them. But hey, you're going to take away from it what you are. And that's what art is. You have to accept that as the artist. Everyone's going to find something different in the, in the piece of art. The movie, the song, the book, the chapter, the poem. And you know, it'd probably be great if everyone got it the way you want. But maybe you write it to be openly interpreted. Follow me on Instagram, at Jake Frazick, J-A-K-E-F-R-A-C-Z-E-K, at Damaged Goods Podcast on Twitter or X. Which one is it now? Twitter or X? Uh, at J-T-H-E-S, J-T-H-E-S. DM me. Let me know if there's fucking, uh, you know, other songs I missed, dude. Go fuck with my books, The Waiting Room, Quicksand. You can get them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, fucking various bookstores, even Walmart. There's a Kindles. There's eBooks. There's audiobooks with who fucking narrating? The Snake Man, dude. Me. Because uh, it would be stupid for somebody else, dude. The first book I did, I was going to do the audiobook and the publisher, not the same publisher as the second one. We won't say their name, but they're like, oh, that's great. We've got somebody great for you. Uh, you know, you just got to pay them like, I think they want like $4,000. Fuck out of here, dude. First off, no, I'm not paying somebody $4,000 to read my book. Second off, at the time I had a radio show. I do a podcast. People like to listen to me. Who's going to deliver it better than me? in my tone, in my intention. So yeah, anyway, grab the books, go listen to some sweet songs that are fucked up. Fuck the Macarena. Don't cheat on your man with his fucking friends while he's in the army. God.